Um, so I, w- I want to say something. I know Neil already mentioned this, but I want to say something about next Sunday's service. And some of you have never been to one of our Thanksgiving services. And it really is a Thanksgiving service. It's a time set aside for you to give thanks to God. You are the message. How God has been a way maker in your life through this last year. And so we kind of break it up into three different sections where we put out microphones here and allow you an opportunity to share about what you're thankful for, how you've seen God meet you in this last year. And I will tell you, it's one of the best services that we have a chance to be part of because we get to be encouraged by how God has met you and, and to see how God has been at work in this congregation. So this week, maybe you need to ask the Lord if you're going to be here. Well, you should be here. But first of all, but ask, what, what would you share? And it just needs to be a short snippet. You don't have to tell all the background stuff. But it is a great time just to give God praise and glory. And it is super encouraging. And it is, it is a true time of thanksgiving. So I want, you to, I want to encourage you to maybe this week count your blessings, if you will, and come and share one of those things next Sunday. It's a great, it's a great encouragement. So um, a group of us men have been out at Whitewater State Park for the men's retreat. And we talked about what do you believe? What do you really believe? And aside from the gorgeous setting that God gave us at the park, we had great conversations about that and to drill down into what do we believe about what God has done for us and will bring into our lives. And so let me start out with this premise before I even get into my message. What do you believe? What, what really is your secure hope? Not wishful thinking, but what is guaranteed to come your way? And what is the true source of your joy? What do you believe? How many of you played the game Monopoly? Anybody? Raise your hand. Are you good at it? Are you good at it? You see, in the game of Monopoly, it's an interesting game, isn't it? Because the, the object of the game is to bankrupt your fellow players. It's to take advantage of them financially to the point where they become financially insolvable, right? That's, that's the object. And so some interesting characteristics come out when you play, don't they? Somebody who's the wheeler dealer. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You know, you go on my property for free and I'll, you allow me to be on your property for free. If you're a wheeler dealer. Or you're just the cutthroat person. Like, nope, mm-mm, nope. Pay up. Let's have it. Okay, you know, get a mortgage your property. Come on, come on. Then there's the person who's the, who's actually really nice. Like, it's okay. I'll let you go. You know, I knew you'd get out of the game if, if, if you know, you pay me. So I'll let, I'll let you go past free, you know. So the altruistic person comes who's, who's really, um, you know, very kind. And sometimes it's the clueless person. Like, you know, you land on their property, you don't say anything, you know. And you just kind of... And then, you know, you get to roll your dice and... Ah! You missed it! 
right? That usually happens to the younger, the younger uh, member of the family. He's going, what? What happened? You know? But, you know, you're, you're trying to win the game, which is to, you know, bankrupt everybody else and get all the money. You know what would be a true tragedy, though? Is if one won the game, you got all the money, all the property, all the stuff, and you took that monopoly money, and you go to Walmart, or you go to Target, and you fill up your cart, and you come to the checkout, you say, I am rich. Here's the payment. And the checker goes, um, that doesn't work here. Sorry. You got something else? But I won! I'm rich! I'm sorry. We don't accept Monopoly money here. It's, it has no value. It's worthless. That'd be embarrassing. You might feel a little bit foolish. Even hopeless. So today, as we're in the book of Philippians, if you want to crack your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul warns the Philippians about a group that are trying to lead them towards false hope, towards false life, where they think they're going to have salvation before a holy God. And he warns them against what really amounts to be monopoly money, spiritually, in the presence of a holy God. But even more so, he steers them back to the one who is their true hope, who is their true treasure, who is their true prize, and is their true joy. And so that's what Paul wants to do for his audience in Philippi and what he wants to do for us today. So let me pray that we have ears to hear and eyes to see that, and then we'll dig into God's Word. So Lord Jesus... Honestly, I just pray that I preach this sermon well and show the beauty of who you are, how you are our infinite treasure, how you are our certain hope, how you are the anchor of our soul, and you are the one who satisfies our souls. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and do in us what we cannot do through the sword of your Spirit. Let it cut where it needs to cut, let it heal where it needs to heal, let it convict where it needs to convict, and let it change us into men and women who are more like Jesus. And if there's somebody here who is yet to put their faith in you, Lord Jesus, open their eyes that they might receive you and receive life. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. So again, just to remind you, I know so many of you know this, but the circumstances of this letter... Is Paul in prison. This is not a place that you or I want to be, but he's in prison for the gospel, for his faith in Jesus Christ, for proclaiming that God has done something. He has not left us alone. He sent his son to live a life we couldn't live, pay a penalty we couldn't pay on going to the cross and conquering a foe we couldn't conquer and rising from the dead. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's worth it to him to be in prison for this message, for this truth. 
Paul may lose his life for this. There's uncertainty. What's going to happen? He doesn't know. But he thinks it worth it. And at one point in the letter earlier, he says, for me to live is Christ. And to die, it's gain. He doesn't care ultimately in the big picture because his treasure is not here on this side of earth. This is where his true joy is found. It's where he's found treasure. In this life, yes, where life begins, but more so when this life is done. And he seeks to encourage his friends in Philippi, his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ there, because they're taking the heat for believing in Jesus. They're being ostracized. They're being persecuted. And he's telling them, hold on. This is where true joy is found. And all throughout, all throughout you know, this, this letter, the theme of joy is there. We'll pick that up in a second here. But last week, he points towards two men who are to be admired and to be honored. He commends two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Because that's what they're living for. The gospel. For Jesus Christ and the hope that is there. So finally he picks up here at the beginning of chapter 3. And he starts out saying, furthermore, or finally. Don't be deceived by that word finally. Because he's got a lot more to say. He's just saying, okay, I'm done talking about this. Now I'm going to drill down deeply into what you need to be anchoring your soul in. So he says, finally or further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing, things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. And here's what I want you to, to drill in here. That true joy is found in true hope. True joy is found in true hope. He says, rejoice in the Lord. This is not a pithy bumper sticker. This is not a pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Don't worry, be happy. That's not what he is saying. He's saying there's a reason for you to rejoice. It's found in where your hope is. And all throughout this letter we've seen him telling us to, telling the, the Philippians to rejoice for both the Philippians and himself. It's not rooted in circumstances. As we've already seen, he's got some crummy, earthly circumstances. But it's in what God has done through Jesus Christ. And he says, it's no trouble for me to write it again. I don't mind saying it again. In fact, he's going to say it again in this same letter when we get to chapter 4. In verse, three, in verse 2, he's going to say it two times. But here's a sample size of what he's already revealed about what God has done in Christ Jesus for us. That you are saints, you are His holy ones in Christ Jesus. That you share in His grace. Chapter 1, verse 7. That God is going to bring to completion what He started in you when Jesus returns. Chapter 1, verse 6. That you're going to be saved by God, ultimately. Chapter 1, verse 28. And it's been granted to you to believe. It's also been granted to you to suffer. Chapter 1, verse 29. 
But God is at work in you for His good purposes. Chapter 2, verse 12. This is what you can rejoice in. This is what you can drill down to. And really, I think what Paul is saying when he says rejoice in the Lord, he's saying continue to preach the good news to yourself. Continue to take that in, what God has done in Christ for you, and let it well up in you and make you joyful. Make you happy, because it can never be stolen, taken away from you. It's forever rooted in Him. As opposed to the other things we seek to find joy in. Right? And he says, it's a safeguard for you. Because it's never going to change. Because we look for joy in other things. And they're fleeting. And they can change. And they can fail. And they can leave us wanting. The Apostle John in his first epistle talks about being careful the lust of the eyes, that is, stuff. The lust of the flesh, that is, being rooted in sensuality. The boastful pride of life, that is, ego. I'm more important than somebody else. It's all rooted in an earthly kingdom that is passing away. Don't find your joy there. No. Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write this again. And I'll say it again. The next chapter. I think we have to ask the question sometimes, where, where are we looking for joy? Is it in the stuff around us? Hey, and, and life is good, because it's, it's made by God. But the problem is, we start worshiping the gift rather than the giver. And it's fleeting. It changes. Have you experienced some of the good things of this life? I know I have. But they never satisfy my soul. And sometimes they're just, they are fleeting. Hey, congratulations, you got the high score in Madden. How's that going to last into eternity? Yeah, your 401k is full, that's awesome. Is that going to last into eternity? That cute outfit you just saw on J. Jill. Is that going to bring you joy? Maybe 15 minutes. It's going to fade, though. Your sports team won! What about next week? We've all been there. We all know it, right? Man, I had a great day at golf. Oh, okay, one hole. All right. But it was good. Is that going to last? Where are we looking for joy? Where are we looking for joy? Because what is true hope, what can't be taken away from us, that's what's going to produce true joy in it. And it has nothing to do with our circumstances. But as I said, Paul is aware of a group who is peddling what I call false hope. Or I could say self-hope. Self-help for self-hope. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, 
We who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, I, you know, at first glance, this is a bit arrogant. Right? Hey, you think you got reason to be, have confidence in the flesh? Well, I got more, bro. I got more. Who are these mutilators of the flesh? It really is a reference to circumcision. That is, keeping the old covenant law. And this is what I call the vanities of self-hope. The vanities of self-hope. These are perhaps Jewish Christians or former Jewish proselytes who say, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good that you found Jesus as the Messiah, but, but, but you know, to, to really be saved, you, you have to keep the Old Testament law. That's what you have to do. It's kind of a Jesus and the law type of theology. And um, Paul is not fond of them. He dogs them because they've been dogging him. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. And in the Greek, the word means those who cut up. And if you understand the process of, of circumcision around male anatomy, that isn't a good thing. The word circumcision in the Greek it actually means to cut around. And he said, we're the real circumcision because we're not talking about what we can do in the flesh. We're talking about what God has done in our hearts through his spirit. And here's the problem with this application. Is that this Jesus plus theology, this Jesus plus, plus belief, means that we're degrading what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection. Somehow we're saying it's not quite enough. It denies what God had done with his Holy Spirit and bringing Gentiles into the church, causing them to be filled with the Spirit and seeing miracles. God proving that Jesus was enough. And to look to self-help is to somehow say, I've got something to add. It appeals to the flesh. But Paul says, hey, you want to play that game? Okay, we'll play that game. And it, it almost is ridiculous, but let's, let's dive in. Because this is where Paul goes, because he's trying to say, you want to stay away from this. And so Paul rolls out his resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like God commanded Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. Were you? Were you, were you a Johnny-come-lately to that process? Score one for Paul. I'm of the people of Israel. I am a blood relative to Abraham. Are you? Or did you just jump on the bandwagon a little bit later? Score two for Paul. Not only that, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob, Benjamin. Which means son of my right hand. The beloved of, of Jacob. Because he was the last child of, of Rachel. First king came from Benjamin. And when the kingdom split, we stuck with Judah. We stuck with the temple worship. We were faithful. How about you? Are you from that tribe? Are you even from a tribe? Score three for Paul. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I excel. I'm above and beyond others. If I'm Awana, I've memorized everything in the Awana books and beyond. In fact, I've memorized the whole Old Testament. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm part of the stormtroopers in regard to the law. I and mean, we know how to keep it. We're very literal. We've got rules for the rules. We're not even going to get close to breaking the law. That's who I am. How about you? Another score for Paul. But here's where things go downhill. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. See, because I was convinced that this Messiah, Jesus, was a false Messiah. Because he was on a tree. And I know the law, that everyone who is hung on the tree is under God's curse. I was convinced he was false. And so I persecuted the church. I persecuted God's people. Until I found out that Jesus became a curse for me. Because I was under a curse. And as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I, yeah, I jumped through all the earthly hoops. I dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's. But I think if we pressed Paul, a, do you really think you kept the law? Because if I tell you, did you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, every moment of the hour? Maybe not. Did I love my neighbor as myself? How'd that work out with those fellow Jews you threw into jail because they were following what you thought was a false messiah? Did you love them as yourself? Did you really converse with them? Or did you just throw them in jail because that's what good Pharisees do in regard to this false messiah? Maybe you're not such a good rule keeper, law keeper. And I think Paul had no delusions, honestly, <laughs> at the end of the day about who he was. In fact, he will say in his letter to Timothy, I... He's a trustworthy saying, I am the chief of sinners. In light of God's righteousness, I am the chief of sinners. But he's playing the game to try and show the, the absurdity of all this. To, end, to imply where this ends up. And what I call it, 
vanities. The vanities of self-hope. Number one, vanity number one, it's vain because it's based on me feeling superior, superior to you in comparison. I'm doing it better than you are. Or I feel inferior. You're doing it better than me. Where does that leave us? God says, interestingly enough, I oppose the proud. Do you think that's God's heart? So there's vanity there. As far as ego. But even more so, the word vanity means worthless. And that is self-delusion. Falsely believing you can meet God's righteous standard by keeping the law. The Apostle Paul will even quote this in his book to his letter to the Romans. But it's Leviticus 18.5 where it says, The man who does these things, that is living by the law, he will live by them. That means once you start going down that pathway, you've got to keep it. You've got to keep doing it. If you trip, if you stumble, you're guilty. Yeah, we'll, we'll do some animal sacrifices, but hey, you're guilty. You, you fell short. In fact, the Apostle Paul will say in his letter to the Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm quoting Psalm 14.3, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It's a false hope. Self-hope is a false hope. But two things happened to Paul. Number one, he met the resurrected Christ and was convinced pretty quickly that he was actually the Messiah. And number two, he sees the failure of how the law makes us righteous. It doesn't. And so he, there's the abandonment of self-hope for true hope. The abandonment of self-hope for true hope. Pick it up at verse 7. But whatever gains to me, I now consider as loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through, Christ, through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see what's going on here in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians? He's saying, yeah, for all the things I had going on for me, and he had a lot of things going for him. He was outstandingly religious. He was a Roman citizen. He was well-educated, could converse with multiple cultures, and I think he did actually pretty well as a tent maker. He supported whole ministries by doing that. But all those things, in comparison to knowing Christ and having the righteousness that he gives, he says, I count it all loss. I count it as garbage, as refuse, thrown on the garbage heap. Those things I was pursuing so hard giving all my life for. I have literally seen the light and it has changed my mind about where my true hope is. Those things, 
They're worthless. Again, it's hard on our flesh because we want to have something to contribute or we want to think, I'm not as bad as all that. The problem is the standard is God. It's not each other. But the good news is you may be as bad as you think, maybe even worse. But it's not beyond Him. It's not beyond Him. And the answer is not what I've done. It's what God has done in sending Jesus the Apostle Paul again in Romans says, you see, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, you see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, we were powerless, we were stuck. Christ died for the ungodly. And very rarely will anyone die for the, a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Shaking our fist against him. Christ died for us. Wow. And here's the thing. It wasn't God changing programs. It wasn't God changing his plan. This was his plan all along. Even though he, he gives the law, it says in Romans 3, 21, it says, but now apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This was my plan all along. From Genesis 3, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. From Genesis 12, a seed that will bless all nations. A righteous king that does what we cannot do. What do you believe? Deep down in your soul, when push comes to shove, when you're on death's bed, and you know you are not going to recover, what do you believe? Is Jesus your righteousness? Is Jesus your hope? Because every one of us in this world, unless the Christ comes back, we're going to face death. And he says, I've overcome it. I've come to give you life. Do we know that he is our hope? That he is our joy? Or somehow are we still looking to throw some Monopoly money in there? Well, we contribute. There's nothing we can contribute, folks. It's both humbling, it's also reassuring. Because it's all dependent upon Him. My hope can only be found in Christ. And so Paul expands in verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, know the power of His resurrection and the participation in his sufferings to become like him in his death, so that somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained, obtained this, or I have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. 
But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is about the pursuit of knowing true hope. Here's what I want you to note. That hope is, and this prize, is a person, not a doctrinal position. This true hope is a person, not a doctrinal fact. The person of Jesus Christ, who can be known, yes, through prayer, through the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, through His Word, which at this time is still being written. But He says, I want to know Him. I want to be like Him experientially. He says, I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of what He suffered I want to become like him in his death and somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Here's what I want you to note real quickly. That the fellowship of his sufferings and becoming like him in his death is bracketed by the resurrection. (laughs) I want to know the resurrection. His sufferings, his death. I want to know the resurrection. That's what I want to experience. I want experience that life. But along the way, I want to experience what Jesus experienced. And some of that will happen in this life. Some of this will happen when Christ comes. But I want to know Him, is what he's saying. And Paul's not some sort of crazy masochist. But he has a unique call. Again, remember, Paul was this really rabid Pharisee that was against Jesus, who was against the church. And he had a radical transformation. And Jesus, when he calls him, informs him of the general terms of his future. This is what, what he says to this man named Ananias, who needs to come along, Saul of Tarsus at the moment. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Now listen to this, verse 16. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Part of Paul's call was to suffer for Christ. It was going to cost him earthly comfort. It was going to cost him earthly pleasure. It was part of the DNA of his call. But this Jesus, whom he was an enemy against and now says, you are my Lord. He treasured him. And it was so dear to Paul, he wanted to experience Christ in every aspect. To know Christ. In the intimacy of even what he suffered. An intimacy, I think that we experience more when we suffer than when things are going really well in our lives. Have you experienced that? When you're going through a trial, when you're going through a hard time, a heartache, a heartbreak, a disappointment, it's there that Jesus wants to meet you. He wants to meet me. Number one, to to say, I can help you through this. I am that way maker we sang about earlier. 
I am the one who is, your great, my grace is sufficient for you through this. I am that one who can meet you through this. So dependence. But number two, sometimes it's just identifying what, what Jesus dealt with. I don't know if you ever look at Jesus' life and go, Oh my Lord. And I don't mean that as a swear word. I mean that as, Oh my Lord. What you suffered. You were slandered. You were misunderstood. You were betrayed. You were abandoned. And you suffered. And when I go through something like that, I start to have emotional Spiritual categories for that. And the fellowship of his sufferings makes Jesus that much more dear and real to me. That's why I know him a little bit more. Paul says, I want that. It's hard, but I want that. Even, even death. I'll take that. Because at the end is the resurrection. At the end is life. And allow these hard things not to drive me away, but drive me to you. Because that's the challenge, isn't it? When the, the stuff hits the fan, do I think, where's God? Has He abandoned me? Does He love me any less? Or is He drawing me closer to Himself? That we might know Him more. And sometimes it's the choice that we make and how to respond to what he's doing. What he wants to show us about himself. Paul wants to know Christ in every possible way. That is his goal. That is his prize. And he says, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of for that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. And if you've read Acts 9, you know the dramatic change of Saul to Paul. How Jesus literally apprehends him, knocks him off his horse, blinds him, and says, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? It's Jesus who you're persecuting. Do you think he had a moment but he did it to apprehend Paul and make him his chosen vessel. Yeah, the chief of sinners and one of the most prolific distributors of grace. You are my chosen instrument, Paul. And Paul says, Jesus, I want to know you. Even in your sufferings, I want to know that. And I'm pursuing you just as you pursued me, as you apprehended me. How about you? Do you want to know Jesus? No matter what it costs. Are we looking for a safe life, a good life that's just, eh, you can keep that, those unpleasant things from me, Jesus. And maybe it'll make you quasi-grateful, but it won't cause you to know Him. Again, Paul says, brothers and sisters, verse 13, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind 
and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the language of the athletic games. How many of you have been in some sort of athletic training to, to try and make something happen? Get stronger. Prepare for a game. How many of you have gone through that straining and that, that process? On one hand, it's agonizing. On the other hand, it's exhilarating. Because you say there's something, there's a goal I'm pressing on towards. Paul says, I got something worth pressing on towards. That's worth agonizing over. That's worth giving myself for. Worth pouring myself out on. And I'm going to forget what lies behind. All that other stuff that I put my confidence in, that's, that's just in the way. I'm going to forget that. I'm going to press on toward Jesus. Press on towards knowing Him. Strain for Him. He's worth the purpose of pursuing Him. He's worth the passion and the effort. And He is my prize. Some of you may know this. Some of you don't know this. And I don't tell you this to boast. My father was a world-class wrestler. Won a bronze medal in the 1964 Olympics. I didn't win it. He did. Okay? My dad was also a Christ follower. That bronze medal is, my dad passed in 2015. That bronze medal is sitting on my mom's wall in Oakland, California right now. It's not doing him any good. But you know what is doing him good right now? Is that I know that my dad prized Jesus. He pursued him. And now he has that prize of being in his presence and knowing him face to face. I'll bet my dad would say, you know, that bronze medal, it's garbage. It's rubbish. It's what our world says we're pursuing. But in the end, that's not what's going to last. He's worth every earthly loss, every strain, every effort. He's worth every trial and every thing. He's worth losing everything for. Because that's where our true hope is. And that's where true life is found. True hope is going to bring true joy, folks. Self-hope is just going to end up in vanity. It's going to be monopoly money. So we've got to abandon that stuff. And we need to pursue Him. The prize worth knowing, worth pursuing, and prizing above all. Psalm 16.2 I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. Let me pray, and then we're going to respond in worship with the worship team. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for your servant, the Apostle Paul, who modeled so well for us both the pursuit of you and also the vanity of trying to do it ourselves. And I thank you for your word. And Lord Jesus, ultimately, I thank you for you. That's what your word is about. 
And you give us the privilege of knowing you. So would you do a work in our hearts, stir us to pursue you, to know you, and discover that you are the greatest thing and you are our true hope. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond in worship?